finish this. I want to talk a little bit more about Charlie with Guida, although, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I want to talk about, um, you know, you mentioned the live and, yeah. the, and, the, and the radio. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of this nexus where we're sort of at mm-hmm. in this story. Yeah, because he was a, the Magnificents were more of a, a, a party band, a show band, uh, uh, and they didn't do a lot of their own original material. Is that correct? They did songs yeah. by General Johnson and Sam Cooke and, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's a little bit different than what was going on with the Norfolk Sound, where they were actually writing these original songs and getting them placed nationally. Um, uh, of course, the, uh, the the party band tradition in you know just Virginia Beach alone is is really something. I mean, uh, you had to be able to play almost anything in order to uh, satiate the audience. Uh, you know, you had to do the latest material that was on the radio, and maybe you had to do some oldies too. Um, so I think they were versed in that. They, they could probably play anything, if I'm, if yeah. I guess correctly. They could and, and one do thing it. that Charlie did a lot of, you know, he backed uh, these acts, a lot of them these national acts. You know, he, he mm-hmm. backed Solomon Burke. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually rented an organ to James Brown. <laughs> uh, rented right. him his organ. Right. Um, a list of artists that they, mm-hmm. you know, so, and these guys would, do you, you know anything about that scene? Well, no, I was just going to say, they, they, they pro- I don't know, did he say anything about Noah Biggs, uh, the owner of Shiptown? He, his name has come up once. Because, uh, because um, Noah Biggs was actually responsible for uh, booking a lot of the nas- helping to book a lot of the national acts that would come through, and he would have Shiptown artists um, opening up for them frequently. So uh, my guess is that they probably did work with him at some point because... Uh, Noah Biggs brought in, you know, Diana Ross and the Supremes and Marvin Gaye and, you know, a lot of the uh, hit performers from that era. And what they were saying, too, with a lot of these guys is they would not travel with the band. Right, so, yeah. right. In fact, that's Gene Barge made a pretty healthy living being the saxophone player that you'd call when you got into town. Uh, and that's how he hooked up with Chuck Willis, who then said, hey, I like this guy. I want to have him on my records and then called him up. Actually, uh, against the advice of the people at Atlantic Records, hey, we have our own saxophone players here in New York. Why are we calling this guy? Um, he would, you know, he, he called Gene up to come to New York. Sure. Um, but uh, but the, from what I understand, that happened a lot. Um, Swamp Dog, Jerry Williams' uh, stepdad, I forget his name, but he, w- he was a great guitarist, and he would frequently... Uh, be asked to come and, and play with bands that would come through town. Or uh, Charlie Bird would say, hey, I'm doing a gig. Will you come and, and play with me? Um, so so this and happened that, a lot. I that's mean, what Charlie did quite a bit. Of well, I, you know, uh, we, we probably should talk about the healthy radio scene, too, which is I really want. fueling yeah, this. That's uh, where I want to get uh, to. Yeah, you had Jack Holmes at WRAP. Yeah, we'd um, like to hear about this. And though. you had Scotty Andrews at WHIH, and you had Gene Loving at WGH. These guys would play your local record. That was what was kind of fueling the local recording. You know what? I, I I I interjected my voice at a really. Did you say that again? <laughs> well, did, did you need the names again? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jack Holmes at WRAP, Scotty Andrews at WHIH, Gene Loving at WGH. These were guys. These were jocks who would play your local record. Uh, good luck getting that to happen these days, unless you're at you know a independent radio station. Um, but uh, there was a, a healthy regional music scene that permitted that at that time. And that's probably why these guys made the local records that they did. Certainly Shiptown um, would be one. And then the listenership. So, so this, 
this idea of um, white kids mm-hmm. listening to this stuff. Yeah. You can talk a little bit about that. Well, um, that's rock and roll, isn't it? I mean, white kids listening to black music. Um, yeah, uh, and one could say that that's why we call a lot of that music now beach music. It's because it was filtered through the white kids. Um, and I, you know, I often hear of Charlie McClendon being labeled a, a beach music act. Uh, sounds, you know, sounds R&B to me. Uh, so the lines are a little sketchy sometimes between what's R&B and what's beach music. Um, I think the, the difference is that you had an overwhelming white audience listening to it and that that makes it beach music part of what uh richard then talked about you know kind of his his little spot in this with charlie was that you know his the light bulb went off for him and he was just a teenager when he approached charlie uh at the uh was it the wagon wheel i can't remember Mm -hmm. uh, where he he you know he was a 15 year old kid yeah yeah said hey charlie you know i can make you a star or whatever right you know was that you know that the white kids were listening to this stuff. Mm-hmm. If they did, if the group didn't have a record, they wouldn't. You know, they didn't have access to all these bands that didn't have a record. Yeah, they basically didn't. You know, they weren't like him, who they didn't have the balls to walk into mm-hmm. these clubs on Church Street. Yeah. Um, so it was this. You know, they they one of the things they started doing was booking these acts, Charlie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For white audiences at right. these clubs, I mean, is there? You well, well, you know, what, what's really interesting to me is you had all of this assimilation. You had whites listening to black music. You had whites and blacks together making the music in many cases, but at the same time in Norfolk, you were also having these incredibly divisive social issues relating to race. Uh, Frank Guida and his crew are, are uh, recording uh, High School USA in a country and western studio in South Norfolk at the very same time that uh, Norfolk schools are being closed because of desegregation. So you really have a lot of strange things happening all at once now. Um, you know, um, uh, who knows uh, if that ever carried over into the music. It doesn't look like it did, but there were, you know, it was a pretty heady time. Also happening throughout all of this, uh, um, a lot of Norfolk, for instance, was getting raised. It was getting torn down. Uh, it was in the middle, uh, in the midst of one of the largest uh, rehabilitation campaigns of its era to basically uh, restore, if you want to call it, uh, Norfolk. Well, you know, a lot of history went by the wayside when they restored. Um, so you had a lot of crazy things happening all at once, which is what's fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. That's great. And Pat, do you have some thoughts about? Um Well, um, I just wanted to just, I was going through my uh, research and uh, just wanted to make sure that we had a lot of the venues that people would play. Yes, awesome. Well, you know, you had, uh, the hotels were huge. If you got the hotel gigs, you were doing well. The Nanzaman Hotel at Ocean View was a big one. Uh, The Golden Triangle Hotel, the largest hotel of the area, uh, was a big one. The Monticello Hotel, but also places like the Congo Lounge. Uh, and the uh, Jamaican Room, which were both in Norfolk, and then you had the Wagon Wheel, uh, which is cited by a lot of people, so it must have been a huge uh, deal to play the Wagon Wheel. Um, I think uh, Jerry Williams, uh, that was an old stomping ground of of his. Um, So you had a lot of different places to play. 